There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. Well, where would you like to go in the Bible tonight? I'm going to let you pick. You decide. Where, what book would you like to go to? All right, well, let's go to Acts then. Some of you say, what kind of preacher is this? We've been in Acts all week long. And in fact, not just in Acts, we've been studying a character. Who's the character? Talk to me. Philip. Very good. And Philip is known as something. Philip the... He's the only man in Scripture called the evangelist. That does not mean he's the only evangelist. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that God gave many evangelists just like he gave pastors and teachers. Pastors are even told to do the work of an evangelist, which means the gospel work, getting the gospel out, seeing people saved. But there are some people that hold the office of the evangelist. I believe that's the call of God on my life, to give myself to the work of the gospel. I'm not preaching a different gospel than your pastor is. I'm just preaching it in many different places. One of the vital differences between a pastor and evangelist is God has called this man to plant himself here and give himself to the work of the gospel in this one location. How many of you are glad for that? Yeah, you ought to be glad for that. But as an evangelist, I'm, I'm moving from place to place to place to place. It's not the travel that makes the evangelist. It's the work of the gospel that makes him an evangelist. And uh, Philip, I think, is the Holy Spirit's model for us of what an evangelist is, and I I want to just be right up front with you tonight, full transparency. He's my favorite Bible character. And when I finish preaching tonight, I intend to ask everybody in this room if you'll sign up to be an evangelist. Some of you say, hold on, preacher. Now you're going a little too far now. No, I'm serious. I'm not going to ask you to preach sermons necessarily unless that's the call of God in your life. I'm not going to ask you to get a suitcase and a passport and go on the road. But I am going to ask you to do the work that Philip did, and that is to get the gospel out and point people to Jesus. Let's review just a minute. If you go back to Acts chapter 6 for a second, you'll see where we started this wonderful study. And we were first introduced to this man because he's one of the original, original deacons. You may want to mark his name if you haven't already in Acts chapter 6 and verse number 5. He's right there after Stephen. He is Philip. And, of course, these men were marked by the fact they were believers. They were, they were faithful men. We're coming full circle back to that thought in a moment. And they were people that were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. These were not carnal men. These were spiritual men. And I want to pause right there and say, may the Lord multiply their kind. We got, look, we got way too many carnal people around churches today. What we need are some spirit-filled people. Did you know that when problems come up in a church, people always reveal which one they are? Every time. Every time. Matter of fact, the whole context of Acts chapter number 6 is they were having a little spat 
in the church. Now, I'm sure this church has never had a spat in the church. But this church, the first church, was having a little disagreement in the church. And, you know, people disagree sometimes. Good people disagree. God's people disagree from time to time. The question is not if you're going to disagree. The question is where you're going to find the agreement when you do disagree. And I love the fact these people agreed to all let the Lord have his way. I think that's a pretty good call, don't you? And spiritual men spoke up, and Philip was one of the men that took his place and did his part. Then come over just a few pages to Acts chapter 8, because here's the most concentrated emphasis on his life. And we, we learn something from watching him in the city of Samaria and then watching him in the desert with the Ethiopian eunuch about a man so filled with the Holy Spirit and full of the love of Jesus that every time he opened his mouth, he just wanted to talk about Christ and try to win people to the Lord. Oh, may God raise up an army of people like Philip. But now look, please, at the end of chapter 8 where we leave him. Acts chapter 8 and verse number 40, But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, every time I read that, I think that's an evangelist right there just passing through. He's not going to be here long. He's just passing through. He preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Mark that in your Bible, would you please? Caesarea. It's a very important place, very important. Later this year, we're taking a Bible study group to that part of the world, and, and I hope to, to see some of these places, and I'm looking forward to that but the reality is Caesarea is a strategic location because in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter number 9, another fellow is going to get saved. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Saul, who becomes Paul. And when the people try to kill him because he's now a follower of Jesus, the disciples send him away. Guess where they send him to? Caesarea. And I've often wondered, is that where these men crossed paths and really got acquainted with one another? We know that there was some interaction between them in the chapter right here because Stephen is martyred and both of them are present around that time. Uh, but I wonder if they really got acquainted as brothers in Christ while they were in Caesarea. And uh, then you find Caesarea in the next chapter, Acts chapter number 10, where Cornelius gets saved. Everybody remember Cornelius and the door of faith is open to the Gentiles? That happened in, Cor in Caesarea. So a lot of good things going on in Caesarea. And here's what's fascinating to me. The last time we find the evangelist at the end of Acts chapter number 8, he is doing the work of the evangelist in a place called Caesarea. Now turn over with me, if you will, to our text tonight, which is found in Acts chapter number 21. Because this is the last mention of Philip, and I think it really gives his lasting legacy. Old Bible teacher A.T. Pearson said, when you study the Bible and you study characters of the Bible and topics in the Bible, he said there's the law of first mention, the law of full mention, and the law of final mention. He meant by that, when you're studying something, always pay attention to the first time they're mentioned. Look at the totality of what God says about them, but pay real close attention to the last time they're mentioned because the Holy Spirit's leaving you with some definite footnote you don't want to miss. Well, here's the, the closing footnote of the Holy Ghost. Look at Acts chapter 21 and verse number 8. Speaking of Paul's missionary team, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto where, class? There it is again, came unto Caesarea, and guess who they found in Caesarea? And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. I think this is really a fascinating thing. The first time Philip is mentioned, 
the context is in the family of God. Everybody remember Acts chapter number 6? It's all about the family of God. But the last time he is mentioned, it is in the context of his own family. May I just pause right here and say that every Christian ought to give attention to their church home and to their Christian home. And Philip was a man, and he didn't pick between one or the other. No, no. He saw both of them as being his divine assignment, and he gave himself to that. I want you to write this down somewhere in the margin of your Bible next to these two verses. Would you just write down this little expression, our greatest work? What is your greatest work? What is my greatest work? Only eternity will tell that. Only God really knows. And let's just be real. Only the judgment seat of Christ will really reveal the greatest thing you ever did with your life. I believe that, that humanly speaking, a man's greatest work he does at home. Because if he doesn't do it at home, I doubt seriously he's doing it anywhere else. Spiritually speaking in Scripture, a person's greatest work is not their public work. It is their private work because all of the public things grow and flow out of the private life. For example, in this meeting, we've sensed the presence of God this week. Isn't that right? We've seen the Lord at work. Do you know what I'm very conscious of in meetings like this? When we see God do things and people saved and answers to prayer and there's some spiritual stirrings in hearts, I'm very conscious of this, that if that is going on, it is not primarily because of what happens on the platform. It is because of what has already happened in the prayer closet. It's not what's going on first in the public meeting. No, no, that, that started somewhere in the secret place, in the, in the quiet place, alone with God, because that is where our greatest work is done. Some people have the idea, because they're up in age and their youth has escaped them now, that their greatest work is done. In fact, I meet people. I really do. Everywhere I go, I meet people sometimes who are up in years, and they'll say things to me like this, well, you know, preacher, my best days are behind me. No, they're not. Are you saved? Then the best day you're ever going to live is the day you see Jesus face to face. So I'd like to tell you on the authority of the Bible, your best days are still ahead of you. That's encouraging, isn't it? My pastor used to say the prime of life is any time in life when you're in the center of the will of God. I like that. The prime of life has nothing to do with age. The prime of life has everything to do with this. Are you in tune with God and is the Lord using you in his work in this world? You see, the, the work that we know that this man did, everybody wants to run to Samaria and talk about the citywide campaign. Everybody wants to famously talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. But I want to tell you tonight that I believe very likely his greatest work is summed up in these two verses in Acts chapter number 21. I'm going to prove it to you. Would you take a pen out? I want you to write a few things down tonight. We'll use it like a spiritual checklist, I hope, so that you can meditate on these things long after this meeting's done. This is the last mention of Philip and a very fitting last message for our study together. Number one, would you write this down? Here's his greatest work. First of all, he was still faithful to the work of Christ and the church. He was still faithful. Now, the first time we saw him, he was a faithful man. <laughs> but I love this. In Acts chapter number 21, guess what? He's still a faithful man. I've been at this long enough now to realize that everybody that starts well doesn't stay well. And even all the people that stay right for a while don't always finish right. A few years ago, I changed my life verse. I don't know if you're supposed to do that or not, but I did. 
I picked Acts 20, 24. I'm calling it my second half verse. I'm 46. I'm halfway to 92, all right? So this is my second half verse. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I've received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I'm going to tell you the greatest prayer of my life. Would you pray for me? Say, how can we pray? People ask me, how can we pray for you? I'm going to tell you, pray for me. Pray that God will help me stay faithful and see Jesus. Pray for that. Because I've seen a lot of people that I had great regard and respect for who are much better Christians than me that somewhere along the way got detoured from the whole thing and they were not faithful to the end. Would you like to know something really interesting about Philip? Did you know in Acts 21, 20 years have lapsed since Acts chapter 6? Let that sink in just a minute. 20 years later, hallelujah, this man is still a faithful man. And I'm just going to tell you, the longer I live and the older I get, the more I admire faithfulness. Talent comes and goes. Smart people, they come and go. The most arrogant people in any church are people that win Bible trivia every time they play it. They know that already. Paul said something about that. Knowledge puffeth up. Excuse me, but a lot of those wind bags just deflate just as quickly as they've blown up to. May I tell you, the greatest thing that could ever be said about your life is somebody says, I'll tell you about that woman. She's a faithful woman. I'll tell you about that man. He's a faithful man. I'll tell you about that family. They've been here all these years, and they are still faithful to Christ and faithful to his church. May the Lord help every one of us to be faithful until we see Jesus face to face. How old are you right now? I tell you, if we all do it together, nobody will hear. On the count of three, tell us how old you are. Ready? One, two, three. Happy birthday. That's wonderful. I want you to add 20 to it right now. Everybody, use your fingers, your toes, your nose. Add 20 to it real quick, real quick, real quick. How old are you? One, two, three. <laughs> Some of you say, I'm dead, I'm dead. No, you're going to be very much alive somewhere. You may be with Jesus. If the Lord tears his coming, lets me live 20 years from now, I'll be 66 years of age. And I'm standing here. Thank you, I appreciate it. But I'm standing here right now. I'm just telling you. It's, isn't it funny how the longer you live, things change? Like, I'm thinking more now about the finish line than I am the starting blocks. And I'm thinking now, the next two decades of my life, if God lets me live, what am I going to give myself to? What am I going to attach my energy to? What am I going to give my limited days to? And 20 years from now, what kind of man am I going to be? Did you know, you're not going to choose 20 years from now what kind of person you're going to be. You're going to choose tonight what kind of person you're going to be 20 years from now. I started preaching as a teenager. You know, kid preachers, they're a novelty. And so people just, you know, tell them they're the greatest thing in the world. And I remember the first sermon I ever preached. I, I said something about it in California last week. I had my dad with me, just had it on my mind. Uh, but I, I preached in a cottage prayer meeting. And uh, I, you know what I preached on? I preached on the Holy Spirit. What on earth was I doing preaching on the Holy Spirit? Twelve years of age. I must have found an outline in a book somewhere. 
And I preached five or six minutes, and all those senior citizens, God love them. They're all with Jesus now. They all sat in there, and they didn't just put up with me. They nodded their heads and smiled. And when I finished, they lined up, hugged my neck, told me it was the greatest sermon they'd ever heard in their whole life, and I was the next Billy Sunday. They lied is what they did. And I remember those early days. I do remember those early days. I remember those first sermons. You remember your first sermons? I remember the, the tenderness in my heart towards the things of God. I remember those early days. And now I'm standing these years later and I'm realizing something. As grateful as I am for the foundation that was put into me and the investment others made and the opportunity that God gave, oh, may the Lord help me. I'd rather die. I'd rather die and go to be with Jesus than to do something to shame the name of Jesus Christ with my life at this juncture. I'm going to tell you, I'd hate my wife to have to say, I'm, I'm sorry I ever married that man. My daughter called me today, one of them. Actually, both of them called me today. And uh, they're, you know, 22 and 20 now. And I talked to my boy just a little bit ago. And I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking right now. It, it staggers me to think that the day could come that I could be unfaithful in such a way that my children would hang their head and be ashamed of their daddy. But I'm going to tell you that what's worse than that, to think we could meet at the judgment seat of Christ and have to hang our head in shame because we failed to be faithful until we saw Christ. Your greatest work, be faithful. Here's a second thing I observed here about Philip. Where did you write it down? He was not only still faithful, number two, he was still carrying on the work of the gospel. Now, this gets outside of himself now. He's not only following Christ and living the Christian life and a true man, but now he's still known as the evangelist. And can I just point something really interesting out? Did you ever notice that he never called himself this? Other people said it of him. Early this morning, I woke up with a verse on my mind. Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure, whether it be right. You know what it means? It means early in life, you start attaching yourself to something and developing a life's mission and a life message. And when people get around you after a while, they just say, well, that's him. You know what I'm talking about. Well, that's her. I mean, you can't be around them long. It rubs off on you. I mean, they're just stirred up about it. They're excited about it. That's what they've given their life to. That's what they're consumed with. And I love this thought. Philip was a man that every time you got around him, guess what? He wanted to talk to you about Jesus. Wouldn't it be a glorious thing if we were known for the good news? In a world filled with bad news, wouldn't it be great if people said, I'll tell you one thing about those people. They're gospel people. They're just gospel people. Every time you get around them, they want to talk about the goodness of God and the Lord Jesus and the differences made in their life. And it's not something, some title we put on ourselves. No, no. It is rather a way of life. It is it's not just something you do. It's who you are. And this man, even in Caesarea, look, even when he wasn't on the move to many places, when he was stationary in one place in Caesarea, what was he doing? He was giving himself to the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, getting on an airplane, getting a passport doesn't make you a missionary. Friend, if you won't go across the street and speak to a neighbor, I doubt seriously you'll take a mission trip, go around the world and win somebody to Jesus Christ. 
We must begin right where God has placed us. See, people have this idea that the work of God is being done in some far-off exotic place, you know. And we watch videos and slides and we say, oh, the work of God's really going on there. Brother, I want to tell you, the work of God is not far. It is always near. It is not future. It is always present. It is not there. It is here. It is not with others. It is with us. And God's people have to get back to the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a man who is a soul winner. This is a man who is a witness. This is a man who is a gospel guide. Remember that expression? This is a man who's just doing what he can where he is to point people to Christ. You can't do everything, but you can do something. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? See, we sit in church and have these meetings, and everybody says, well, that was nice. What are you going to do with it? If all I did was preach a handful of sermons, I wasted my breath, and you wasted your time. Let's pack up and go home now. What difference will this make when the meeting is done? Dear Lord, give us some Phillips who have the heart of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to give the gospel. Today, I was talking to a friend of mine, a pastor in Florida. He's on the coast where the storm is coming in right now. We were talking a little bit, and I love this. He's a gospel guy. He's just a gospel guy. I, I called to check on him and tell him we was praying for him and, and the storm and all that, and just as quick as he could, he got to the gospel. I loved that. I just love that. I mean, they're batting down the hatches. He's talking about the work of the gospel. And he said to me, Scott, he said, I met the most amazing young man the other day. He said, I'm going to send you his, his contact information. You should touch base with this young man. He said he started something online, just sharing the gospel online and making himself available. And he said he's got thousands of emails from people who are asking him Bible questions and seeking more information about knowing Christ. He said he's getting so many people communicating with him, he and his wife can't keep up with them. And I thought to myself, all the while, most of us are sitting around talking about how bad the world is. And, you know, the, the, the whole country is just going to hell and nobody cares anymore. Maybe, just maybe, if we got inside out, turned the thing upside down, got out of our rut. You know, Vance Havner used to say a rut's just a grave with both ends knocked out of it. Maybe if we got out of our rut, our routine, our schedule, our busyness, ourselves, our spiritual funk and got our eyes on the harvest and just start, I know this sounds crazy, it's really fanatic, just giving the gospel again, maybe, just maybe, we'd run across some people who need Jesus and want to be saved. And so Philip, still faithful, still doing the work of the evangelist. Number three, would you write this down? He was still encouraging others in the work of the Lord. This man's an encourager. Did you know in churches... And, and look, I, I'm in a lot of churches, but I'm just going to tell you, in churches, there are two kinds of members. Hold on to your seat. There are drainers and there are refreshers. Which one are you? And if I really wanted to know, I wouldn't ask you. I'd ask the people to go to church with you. There's some people, every time you get around them, it's just woe is me and everything's bad. And I call them Eeyore Christians. Everybody remember who Eeyore is? Everything's on the down note, you know. Well, I tell you, brother, it's just it's rough out there. Mm -hmm. But then you get somebody, their life's not perfect, and they're not perfect. But you know what they are? They're, they're happy in Jesus, and they want to share the joy of the Lord, and they're trying to prop others up on the leaning side and encourage the brethren. You know what they are? They're refreshers. And, man, you get around them. You get around them just for a few minutes. It's like the measles. It breaks out on you. It's wonderful. And you just think, man, that, 
I'm just glad I came. I'm glad I talked to that woman. I'm glad I saw that man. You know what every one of us ought to pray? Lord, make me that. Isn't it interesting? Everybody look here at Acts chapter 21. So he's, he's still faithful 20 years later. He's still called the evangelist 20 years later. But notice, please, he's opening his house to the missionary team. Can I show you the irony of that? Would you like to know the irony? 20 years previous, Saul, now Paul, had chased these people from their homes. Let that sink in just a minute. Two decades previous, the very guy he's opening his living room to had been a persecutor of the church of Christ and had been going into homes of believers and arresting them and putting them in jail. <laughs> what a change the grace of God makes. And now what's Philip doing? He said, y'all can use my house if you like. By the way, May I just say, this was a man that was not ashamed to be identified with people even when it was difficult. Because at this juncture, this is not an easy time. Paul's not a popular man. And this opens this man up in his own hometown to some suffering and to some persecution. But he's not worried about all of that. You know what he's doing? He's trying to encourage God's servant. He's trying to help God's men. He's trying to move them forward on their journey to Jerusalem for the gospel of Christ. This is a man who exhibits true Christian hospitality. We could use some of that today. In a world of hatefulness and harshness, I'm going to tell you what ought to set God's people apart, the love of Jesus. And that is not my idea. Jesus is the one who said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples when you have love one for another. This church ought not be known for nice buildings. You got them, but that's not what you ought to be known for. This church ought not be known for how many missionaries you support or how much money's in the bank or, or how many programs you have for children. This church ought to be known for this. Those people are full of the love of God. That is the characteristic of every one of Christ's churches that is what they ought to be. And Philip was a man who exhibited and exuded the love of Jesus Christ and the partnership in the gospel. Frankly, if you look at the whole story, Paul's having a pretty tough time right here. Matter of fact, in the verse that follow, Agabus is getting ready to tell you're going to die. <laughs> That's encouraging. Isn't that encouraging? It's true. The prophecy was true. They're going to bind you when you get there. That was true. They were going to arrest him. But watch this. Along the way, oh, I love this. Along the way, the Holy Ghost had some Phillips that strengthened God's man. I told you on the Lord's Day, my dad's been pastoring the same church for 33 years. You don't stay someplace any length of time, but certainly not three decades without having some problems. I was a teenage boy when my dad took that church, his first church. He said his first and his last. And God started blessing. Well, he was just preaching the gospel, and he, he had not been to Bible college, but the Lord had awakened something in him, and he started preaching, and, and he, he was just on fire for the Lord. And the church exploded. And when I say explode, I mean in a good way, a good explosion. People getting saved and joining the church and baptized. I mean, there wasn't a place to put people. It was wonderful. They had a friend day. And the church had, I don't know, at the time, maybe, maybe 100 people, 150 people, something like that. Dad said, let's have a friend day. We'll all bring our friends. And the people got excited about it. And the first friend day, they had 604 people show up. That was amazing. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And in our little area, I mean, that was the talk of the town. And you just think, hey, they're bringing in the kingdom over there. 
Don't you know when that kind of thing starts happening, the devil pokes his ugly head up? In the midst of all that, there was a man in that church, a prominent man, a well-spoken man, a well-to-do man that became a mouthpiece for the devil. And he really did. He got the devil in him. He started stirring it up and, and uh, causing problems and friction and division. That ought not be. Somebody said, most churches are more like goat pens than they are sheepfolds because everybody's butting heads all the time. Shouldn't be that way, but it is sometimes. I remember my dad was, I, I don't know how I remember this, he was preaching through the book of Nehemiah. They were in a building program. He was preaching through the book of Nehemiah. And that man, I can see him right now on the parking lot of that church, accosted my dad one night after church. Right next to our car. I'd already gotten in the car. And uh, dad was walking to the car. And he got in my dad's face and just let him have it. I still remember that man said, if you preach one more sermon from the book of Nehemiah, I started to get out of the car. I, I was getting out of the car. I was going to whip him in Jesus' name. That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? But I thought, I'm young, and he's old with a bad back. I can take him, you know, and I was going to do it. And I still remember my dad said to me, son, I'll never forget it. He said, son, now you get back in the car. He said, the Lord will take care of this. <laughs> he did, too. Oh, yeah. You don't ever forget the Lord knows how to take care of the devils. Martin Luther said, always remember, even the devil's God's devil. He knows how to take care of the enemy. Dad just kept plodding and trying to be faithful. They went through a season, lost a lot of people. And uh, nothing wrong, just there's seasons in ministry. You say, why are you telling us all of this? Because in that season, there was a man in that church. He's with the Lord now. Neely Mills was his name. I can see him and Miss Francis right now. <laughs> he was a World War II vet. He was a, he was a woodworker. He had great big old strong hands. He, he, he always greeted at the door. And like a good military man, every night, every night you come in and you say, how you doing, uh, Brother Mills? And he always had the same answer. He said, at my post of duty. And he was. Just always there. And when my dad was having the hardest time in his ministry, that man and his wife made it their business to encourage my dad and our family. They stand out in my mind. I remember meetings. Nobody knew the struggle my dad was going through and the spiritual battles he was fighting. I remember messages. My dad weeping his way through the message. People didn't know why he was so broken, but well, I knew. I didn't know all of it as a boy, but I knew enough. And I remember Brother Mills, that great big old strong man, come in, putting his arms around my dad and saying, Preacher, we love you, and I'm pulling for you. I remember Mrs. Mills making peanut butter pie. God bless her peanut butter pie. <laughs> they made it their business to encourage God's servants. I'm speaking very personally right now. I don't know all these years later if I would have wanted to have been in the ministry had it not been for a Philip and his wife who showed us the love of God. You be that person. Write this one down. He was not only still faithful and still gospel-centered and still encouraging others, but one more, number four, he was still influencing the next generation. Do you all believe here that every word of Scripture is given by inspiration of God? You all believe that, right? So nothing's there by accident. 
So can I ask you a question? Why does verse 9 in the Bible? That's an odd verse. And there's been a lot of debate about it. He, the same man had four daughters, okay, virgins, okay, which did prophesy. Go ahead and explain that one to me. Now, I'm going to tell you what I believe from Scripture. Joel prophesied of this transition period found in the book of Acts, the age where the Holy Spirit would first come on the day of Pentecost. And one of the marks when the Holy Spirit would come is that your sons and your daughters would prophesy. There's lots of sign things in the book of Acts. They were assigned to those Jews that this really was of God. I believe that's what this is. But don't miss the most obvious thing. Don't, don't get lost in the weeds on that and miss the most obvious thing. Did it ever dawn on you that this man was such a real Christian that his four girls wanted to follow God and serve him too? Our greatest work, you see. Our greatest work. Did it ever dawn on you that your greatest work may not be what you accomplish but what you leave behind? See, a heritage is not just something to hold it's not just something to guard. It's not just something to cherish. It is something to pass on to the generation coming behind. Look at this verse. Here is a man who is influencing the next generation to speak for God and continue that work when he is gone. Oh, I love that. You know who Philip was? A man willing to open his mouth and speak for Jesus. By the way, study this out. Study this out in the book of Acts. Do you realize that every sermon in the book of Acts is about Jesus? Every sermon. Oh, wait, it gets better than that. Do you realize every recorded word of Philip is about Jesus? <laughs> that doesn't mean that's all he ever said. I'm confident he said other things. But the only thing recorded that he spoke was what he had to say about Christ and the gospel. I love that. And somehow he not only said it, he lived it in such a way that four girls at home said, whatever daddy has, we want a good dose of that too. We must begin with our own children. We must begin with our own grandchildren. Don't ever, ever, ever underestimate the powerful influence you have, not just on your children, but on your grandchildren. My grandpa Paulie, I didn't even know. He died when he was 57. He was a preacher. And he was, he was a mountain preacher, rough around the edge. He, he got up carried away in a church one night and said, Bless God, there's two things no church needs. That's a clock on the wall and a busy-bodied woman, and this church has got both of them. That wasn't a good thing to say at all. He didn't stay in that church long either, let me tell you. But you know what Grandpa had? He had the Lord on him. He didn't have a whole lot of education or a whole lot of couth, but he had the Lord on him. And when he died, he left three pennies in his pocket. That was the sum total of the inheritance. Three pennies. My dad told all the siblings, don't argue, I'm keeping every bit of it. And he did. In the family Bible home, three pennies taped right there in the family Bible. It's a reminder to us. Look, please. A man's life consisted not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. The lions are falling to me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I didn't even meet the man. And I want you to know, he gave me something that money cannot buy and death cannot take away. Don't you ever underestimate the power of your influence to the generation coming along behind you. And might I just say this? It may not even be just your children either. It may be the young people and children in the family of God. Titus 2 says the older men in a church are supposed to teach the younger men and the older women are supposed to teach the younger women. We need some Phillips who get that it's not all about them and what they can get done. It's about what they can pass on to the generation coming along behind them. 
Matter of fact, let me just show you something real quick. Go all the way back to the Psalms for just a second. I'm almost done, but look at this Psalm. I was looking at this earlier. Look at Psalm 127. We like to quote this one verse, but don't miss the verse after it. Psalm 127, verse 3. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Can I get an amen there? But don't miss the next part of it. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Do you understand that your job is not to hold on to your kids? It is to prepare your kids to advance the gospel outside of your home. It doesn't say you'll speak with the enemies in the gate. It says they'll speak with the enemies in the gate. That's deeply convicting to me. Would you do this? Mark this in your Bible. In verse 3, children are in heritage. At the end of verse 3, children are fruit. But in verse 4, children are arrows. Don't miss this. The heritage is to guard. The fruit is to enjoy. But the arrows are to be sent. You know what arrows are? They're what go beyond you. They engage the enemy. They're not to be looked at and put on the wall. They're to be sent, to be shot out beyond where you can go, to engage the enemy. Look, please, to advance the gospel front lines against the gates of hell. That is our job. And I tell you, we have not fulfilled our greatest work until we have prepared others to do the same. Look, look. If everything reproduces after its own kind, don't you think evangelists ought to reproduce evangelists? When I started in evangelism, I thought, well, we had a great meeting. We had a bunch of people say, good, wonderful. And then one day I got so convicted, it dawned on me that if I really am a gospel worker, if I'm a gospel worker and I'm reproducing, that when I leave a church, I shouldn't just leave new Christians, I should leave new witnesses. And so I'm on a mission tonight. I'm on a recruiting mission. And I make no apology for it because it's not for me, it's for Jesus. You know what we need in our generation right now? We need some people of all ages to take seriously their own personal walk with Jesus Christ and the work that they can accomplish for the gospel's sake in their home and in their community. And sign up again to do their greatest work. Begin at home. But don't you quit until you see Jesus. Don't you die before you die. How many of you are breathing? Let's try that again. How many of you are breathing? I'm concerned about a few of you. Check on your neighbor. Would you please check on your neighbor? Look, if you're still breathing, there's a reason. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Do you understand that to your dying breath until you see Jesus face to face? There's a work to do. And this is not the time to lay down and coast to glory. I don't want to coast to heaven on fumes. I want to cross the threshold of the celestial city with the pedal to the metal. I want to be, by God's grace, a man like Philip. And tonight I came to ask you if you'll join me. Our Father... I'm praying tonight that like a divine exclamation point on our study, these two little verses tucked away in Acts 21 will dig deeply into our hearts and the sword will pierce through, Lord. Oh, God, help us. 
to be faithful till we see Jesus. Our heads and hearts are bowed before the Lord prayerfully. If you're saved right now, would you praise God for saving you? Just thank Him for saving you. And I must ask this question because I can't assume everybody here knows Jesus. You may not know Jesus. I will not embarrass you, but I do want to pray for you. And I would not, I would not be a true evangelist if I did not ask. Is there someone here tonight that would say, Preacher, I don't know for sure that my sins are forgiven. I, I don't have assurance of eternal life and that heaven is my home. Brother Scott, would you pray for me? I, I'm not ready to meet God like I am, but I don't want to go to hell. Pray for me. Would you slip your hand up in the air with mine long enough for me to see it? And then pull it back down. Say, pray for me tonight, preacher. I'm not certain of my own relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for me. Anyone at all. I'm looking carefully. Anyone. Pray for me. Then best I can tell, I'm speaking to believers. So let's just go down the line. Let's use the checklist, shall we? Be an honest person. Be humble enough to tell the truth. How many of us in this room would say, Brother Scott, I've been saved, but I've not been as faithful in my own personal walk as I ought to be to, to live it and to be a fervent Christian every day. And that's the thing God's speaking to me about. Preacher, pray for me. Would you raise your hand with mine? Yeah. How many of you would be honest tonight and say, Brother Scott, I'm trying to live the Christian life, but I need to get more engaged in the work of the gospel. I don't need to let up right now. I need to intensify my efforts to try to bring people to Jesus. I want to be one of those evangelists. Sign me up. Would you raise your hand with mine right now? You say, that's in my heart. Amen to that. How many of you would say tonight, Brother Scott, I want to be one of those refreshers, one of those encouragers, to, to be full of the love of Jesus and to show Christian hospitality and to minister to others having a hard time around me. I want God to make me a blessing in my church. Pray for me. Would you raise your hand with mine? Amen to that. How many in this room would say, Brother Scott, I want to leave something behind me. I want to take somebody that's a little younger than me or maybe has less experience than me and invest in them. I want to start at home or I want to start with the young people in our church, but I want to do something to reproduce myself and pass it on like somebody gave it to me to the generation coming on behind me. I want to do my part in that. Pray for me. Would you raise your hand with mine right now? Amen to that. Me too, me too. Well, here's how we're going to end this meeting. May I ask, how many of you have family in this room tonight? You have family. Would you raise your hand? You have family here. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to get your family together. That's right. I'm going to ask you to get whatever family you have in the room, I'm going to ask you to get your family together. And I'm going to ask you to find a place in this room to pray together as a family. Whoever's here that can take charge of that and lead in that, but I want you to pray together as a family that God will make you individually and collectively faithful people and use your home to make a difference in this church and this world for the gospel's sake. How many of you are like me and you don't have family here tonight, but you're saved? Would you raise your hand, please? All right, I got good news for you. Would you like to know what it is? You do have family here tonight. It's called the family of God. So in a minute... When people are finding their family, if you, your family's not here, I'm just going to ask you to find some fellow believers to pray with. You men, find you a brother to pray with in the Lord. You ladies, find you a sister in the Lord. If you see somebody by themselves, just invite them into your family tonight if need be. But let's make sure nobody prays alone. And if you want to share a prayer request with one another, if you want to share a brief word of testimony, what God's speaking about, fine. But I don't want us to major on talking to each other. I want us to major on talking to God. And I'm going to challenge every one of you to pray. And after we've spent a little time, a season of prayer like that, I'll come back and close our prayer. 
We're going to make the Lord's house a house of prayer tonight. We're going to ask God to seal in our hearts the truth we've learned from the Word of God and help us now to apply what we have learned. Spurgeon said, the sermon does not begin until the application begins. It is not an invitation I'm after tonight. It is an application. What will we do now with what we know? The thing that you raised your hand about a moment ago, I want you to share that with somebody you love And then I want you to talk to God and commit yourself to it. Here's the way we're going to do it. I'm going to begin the prayer. I'm not going to say amen because I'm not ending it. I'm just starting it. And when I finish my part of the prayer, I'm going to ask you right then and there, without me even saying amen, to quietly and quickly leave your place, get your family or some fellow prayer partner, some friend that you can pray with, and find you a place to pray. If you want to come kneel on the altar, I think that would be most appropriate. But if you need to pray where you are, you can turn around and make your chair your altar if you need be. But all around, we're going to pray tonight. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit, and don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm.